Hey there, before we start, just know this episode contains mature content. Stay tuned after the show for a preview of the next season of Headlong, coming to you in early 2019. Previously on Surviving Y2K. You need shelter, water, fire, and food. Don't need anything else. 13 out of 24 federal government agencies will not complete their Y2K work by January the 1st, 2000. I don't want you to just sit there and say, oh my God, this terrible thing's going to happen, I'm going to die. We wanted to get you excited about the fact that maybe it'd be fun. So we sold everything, gave it away or sold it, paid off all our debts, used the money that we got to go to Israel. So you guys started dressing differently. Yeah, we dressed in white robes. The Ark of the Covenant is the center of the Holy of Holies. We felt like it was key in the end days. You guys were looking for it. Oh, we were really confident we would find it. So you're always living for the end. You're never really living for the present. You went from zero to 60 real quick. I'm sorry if this is really graphic, Henry. I'm just going to go for it, right? I mean, in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a married man on a business trip, and I have just felt... It's not passion, it's sex, it's gross, but I felt what people were talking about. Now I'm trapped. I have to tell her. I have to say something. It all felt like a funnel, and, and, and the New Year's was that funnel, and I, everything was just swirling towards it. On January 1st, 2000, the day before I walk out on my wife, I am hungover. But that's a lie, really. I'm just sick with dread. The hangover, an excuse to be quiet. An alibi for my strangeness. My wife is recovering from a long night at work, and so we stay out of each other's way for most of the day. That evening, we walk over to the Beekman Theater on 2nd Avenue to see the movie Man on the Moon about Andy Kaufman. But I spend most of it out in the lobby, on the floor, against the wall, picking popcorn flecks from the carpeting. There's a conspiracy theory that Andy Kaufman faked his own death and is now living happily and anonymously in Fiji or something. And this strikes me as not the worst idea in the world. We go to bed. I lay down on my side, facing away from my wife, me knowing this is the last night I'll spend here. I don't sleep. I just look at that stupid clock radio. Yeah, we still have clock radios. Yay, the future. And for the next six or so hours, I stare the meaning right out of time. Like looking at your eyebrows for too long. Now, it's just a game. It's 2.22. That's three of a kind. It's 2.34. That's a runner. It'll happen again at 3.45. And then 4.56. But before that comes 4.20. Ayo. My wife gets out of bed to make coffee. But it's still dark in here. We look out onto the first floor of a six-story air shaft. Do I want coffee? I tell her, no, I'm sick. A few hours later, the room's still dark. She checks on me again. I tell her, no, just let me sleep. I'm sick. It's afternoon now. Still dark in here. She checks on me again. This time, she puts her hand on my forehead. And that's what does it. I make myself sit up, angry that she's being nice to me. But anger becomes crying, and then I'm gagging. I'm actually gagging. And I give it very little run-up, almost no setup or context to what comes next. I just say how sorry I am, and I say I'm gay. 
And that's where stuff stops making sense. There's no narrative. It's just screaming and crying and moving from room to room and guttural noises, not words, just a vomit of emotion on both sides. Not a lot of poetry happening right now. And the buzzer rings. My wife's friend shows up. Right, I called her. My wife wants me out now, but I can't leave her alone like this. I buzz the friend in, and when the friend walks in, I walk out. I walk out on my wife. It's sunny outside after hours in the dark. Perhaps I should have used some of my clock radio staring time or the 26 years leading up to this to figure out what I would do after I dropped that bomb. But when I leave that apartment where I would never sleep again, I have no idea what to do next. Episode 6, New Millennium. They say the 60s didn't end when the calendar says they should have. They didn't end on January 1st, 1970. Too tidy. The 60s ended on August 9th, 1969, when the Manson family murdered Sharon Tate. Or on December 6th, 1969, at Altamont, the anti-Woodstock. It's the same with the millennium. The real end of the second millennium was, of course, in 2001, on September 11th, the thing we measure before and after by now, an eclipse. And Y2K and the preparation for that? Just penumbra, hardly there at all. Today's episode is the last of surviving Y2K, and it's about Tom and Susan, the survivalists and Adair Levon and her family in Israel. And me. And how, for all of us, the neatness of dates, even three zeros in a row, gets dwarfed by the things we couldn't see coming. On New Year's Eve, Tom and Susan, the survivalists, were listening on the radio outside, in the hills near San Diego, as the millennium swept over the world. So as each time zone was clicking over... Sydney and Shanghai. And, oh, well, there doesn't appear to be anything there. Cairo, Madrid. It was nothing there, and... That was it. That was it. And the next thing that happened was my telephone rang. My father was in England at the time, and he said... You are the only people in the world that are so happy that nothing happened. But you would have been so happy if it had. And he was absolutely correct. Susan and Tom, they wanted something to happen. That's what they were preparing for. They built a whole school for it to prepare others. And it was going to be their new beginning. But still, even though it didn't come, they hoped the scare of it had maybe changed things. We felt that there was an awakening of people. That they realized how dependent we are on the system that we've created. That we now felt that these people had been awakened to the point that we could just be teaching everybody. And they, they would all learn shelter, water, fire, and food, respect for the earth. We were just so excited. And it was only a few days later when we realized that 
Nobody People cared. didn't want to talk to anybody that had done anything to prepare. You can't use that word survival. It's you for can't Bowden. use it. You were, you, sir, were a nut job for getting ready for Y2K. We told you it wasn't going to happen. And that's what You're they did. You're a nut job. So even the people that had put themselves out to learn it, that really respected us for everything that we shared, are now saying, well, you just added fuel to the fire. We knew all along nothing was going to happen. Susan and Tom seek reinvention. New communities who would want to hear the message they had. And in six months, with the help of Google and this computer that I had never wanted to have that was still running because Y2K didn't knock us out, I became a nonprofit. And we began teaching wilderness survival hmm. at a continuation high school. Survival skills as a way into self-reliance and confidence. They even write a book about survival. Here it is. Who is it dedicated to? This book is dedicated to the animal in all of us, that part of us that knows instinctively how to stay alive. And they had spent years teaching others how to stay alive, how to survive something that didn't come and was probably never going to. And now seems a little ridiculous. Until about three years later. October 24th, 2003. They're working at the school at the time, and Susan takes off in a hurry. And of course, the first thing that somebody asks Susan is, why are you heading home? And Susan says, well, haven't you heard? We've got a predicted Santa Ana with winds of 75 miles an hour. You know, you get the Santa Ana winds blowing, the hot, yeah. dry winds blowing down in California. And it hasn't rained here in a long time. And I said, we'll be on fire watch. They live in a canyon that has only one way in and one way out, with only a smattering of neighbors. If you've lived in fire-prone areas, these alerts, they kind of happen a lot. And frankly, most people just kind of ignore them. But while the folks down the road sleep warm in their beds, Susan and Tom bed down outside, alert. And after midnight, Tom climbs to a lookout point they had staked out two nights before. And that is when it happens. And I turn my head and within 15 seconds, the sun is now rising and it's in the wrong spot. And I go, oh my God. That's the fire. It was burning 15 acres a second coming at us. It burned 60,000 acres in the first hour. Get out of the house now. And we just ran out. We jumped in the cars. I had packed it all before I came back down. We were ready to go. And the windows of the house are vibrating. They're because it's coming at us. Nobody knew it came. That's how fast it came. This was recorded by someone as that fire swept across the mountains. Wow, there it is right there. There it is right there. Holy fuck. People couldn't get out of their houses. So our neighbors across the way, I think it was 12 of them, never got out. They burned to death. They just, they didn't, they never even found them. They found a tooth, you know, I mean, completely incinerated. That means now at least 20 people are dead. As you can see in these pictures, the fires are burning out of control tonight still. Everything was gone, except our house. Tom and Susan had spent years clearing brush. They were on fire watch. 
they had packs ready for a quick escape. And when the largest wildfire California had ever seen showed up and killed 12 of their neighbors, they survived. That's how we survived the big fire. That's how we survived That's how we, the fire. why you were sitting in this room still alive, speaking to you. The past is inescapable, right? The things we experience, things we did, they define us. But for Susan and Tom, still, it's not the past, but the future. What they expect to happen, that's what dictates how they live even today. Y2K was a, a date certain that we had something that we were working towards, and it didn't happen. Well, that was a good thing. But we're, we're not out of the woods. What do you mean? What do you anticipate? The end of mankind. It is going to be this earth under our feet is going to get rid of us. She's done with us. Some people will survive the event. People that are trained, that know what the hell they're doing, will be able to, to survive this event. It won't be fun. You'll survive. It's coming. Whether I ever see it in my lifetime, I don't know. but. It's looking pretty, pretty dodgy out there. So it could come, as they say, like a thief in the night. And if it does happen? Let's go get our Jackies yeah, on. Yeah, get your Jackies. Let, let's show them what you look like oh as twins dressed up. <laughs> Their dogs, legend and mystery will greet the end in jaunty matching outfits. Oh. <laughs> legend. <laughs> come on. It's not cute unless there's two of you. <laughs> There's some comfort to be had in the end, dwelling on the idea of it, reminding yourself every day that it's gonna come. Because the worst blow is the one you're not ready for. It's the sucker punches that hurt the most. It's funny, because I hear you talk, it sounds so far away. Does it prevent you from participating in the world now, as it exists? She's a city council person. It's true. Even as we speak, there's a yard sign in the lawn out front. Vote for Susan. We just are enjoying every day and doing the very best that we can, which is what we've always done. And we will continue that way. I want to spend my life working towards love. peace. Making people peace live, and love. You know. The ultimate hippie. So what we're trying to do all the time by teaching people how to connect with the earth to, you know, be nice to each other and stuff like that, is to push that darkness back. Every good you do in the world pushes it back. It makes it recede. I would much rather sit here and have my glass of wine than think about going naked with a knife into the woods. It's not as exciting to think of to do that anymore. It's going to be a little more difficult at my age to go out there and do it. Could I? Yes, of course I would, and I would survive. And maybe if we push hard enough, it really won't happen. Yes. That's the whole thrust, right? Maybe it just won't happen. We just stay busy, Milton Thank you so much. Oh, give me a hug. Sincerely, what a pleasure. You can prepare all you want for the apocalypse. People do it. They are my buds. But no one tells you how to prepare for being the apocalypse. The day after I left my wife is January 3rd, a Monday. 
I wake up in the morning on my parents' couch, and I walk to the free clinic in Chelsea, where a doctor shoves a thin metal rod up the shaft of my penis. God, I hate Mondays, don't you? He finds no sign of gonorrhea or chlamydia, suggesting that maybe I didn't get an STD from a blowjob at a Dirty Brook store in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which I then didn't pass on to my wife. And that maybe I had made the burning up in my head. To which I say, that's impossible. I'm not an insane person. To which he gives me a look like one of me walks in the door every other day. To which I give him a look like, oh. As I realize, he thinks I have a guilty penis. My penis expected the end of the world. And then it didn't happen. The day after that, I wake up on my parents' couch, and for the first time ever in my life, I walk into a psychotherapist's office. About 15 years too late, I know. We skip the how many brothers and sisters crap and get right to the shame and guilt. And the day after that, I wake up on my parents' couch, which I'm starting to get used to. This isn't so bad. And I head out to get an AIDS test. Yes, I know, getting HIV from a blowjob, not easy. The odds are insanely low. But that means nothing to me. My Uncle Ben had died of it. I found out he was gay and that he had AIDS in the same sentence when I was 12. My dad broke the news over dinner, talking over Siskel and Ebert, who I can still hear reviewing Pretty in Pink at that moment on the little kitchen TV behind him. And it just didn't seem like that big a leap to me. I hadn't imagined the injury without the kill shot. The logical third act in the drama I had created would obviously begin here, sitting in a doctor's office waiting area, watching a steady flow of patients coming out of the back office as the rest of us study their faces for signs of the news they'd just gotten, like the golden ticket episode on American Idol. I'm negative, meaning my wife is negative, meaning the floodwaters had crested. And now, months of cleanup which we both know is futile because we both know that this can't be fixed. And it's made even more complicated by the inverse paths ahead of us. I knew this was coming. For me, the shock was surviving it. But she got blindsided. And so the way forward for her, less clear. And the only thing I can do, as meager an offering as it is, is to try and be here for it while she does the hard work. Coming up, the new millennium for Adair Levan and her family, and the conclusion of surviving Y2K. Men are pigs. Not like men are jerks. I'm talking about like literally men are pigs. We are animals. And I was not prepared at all for what is going on in gay bars in the year 2000. Holy moly, I had no idea. There is a bar where the bartenders take turns showering on stage. There is a bar where a shirtless dude in leather will shine your shoes and give you a buzz cut in front of a sexed up crowd of bears. There's a bar called The Cock, and its sister bar, The Fat Cock, both have back rooms, a free-for-all zone, which isn't really my thing, but you know, you gotta check it out at least once, right? And it's where I learned the very important lesson, don't wear flip-flops to The Fat Cock. There are hustler bars, and there are gay sports bars. 
at Happy Hour, the Toolbox on First Avenue serves cocktail wieners in a chafing dish. Unironically. I mean, I could keep going. Check out the show notes for a full list. And then there are piano bars where a gay boy will make you fall for him while he looks you in the eyes and sings So In Love from Kiss Me Kate, right before you both explode in a mushroom cloud of glitter. And then there are bars where someone can smile at you and you can smile back and maybe even talk to them and feel for the first time what a certain kind of chemistry is. And pretty soon you learn you can do all that anywhere without the bar part. And you're sad to think about all the time wasted when you weren't smiling back. And you're ashamed for all the damage done to get here. And it makes you hard to be with. So you get dumped and you get dumped again. And you up the meds and the therapy and you get dumped again, but then you don't. And then you're with someone for 15 years and counting. In the end, in the coldest of terms, it was a transaction, a transfer from me to her. I had all this pain, and the only way to ease it was to hand it off, and she had no choice in that. But she did have a choice afterwards. She could have thrown it back at me, little bits at a time, in every phone call, in every argument, death by a thousand guilty cuts, till I was overwhelmed all over again. Instead, she chose to accept the burden for me. First, with a lot of anger. Totally appropriate, totally appropriate. She had a right to it. But then, so quickly, with grace and kindness, she chose not to add to the shame I already felt. She's married now, with two kids, cute ones too. And she's had success, and a big house, and a life that has nothing to do with me, which we think is best, don't you? Marrying that woman was the biggest, cruelest mistake I've ever made. But marrying that woman? Smartest thing I ever did. The local newspaper chronicles the return of Adair Levon and her family to Michigan after eight years waiting for the end in Israel. On page one is a picture of Adair's daughter, Samora, 15 now, trying to coax their big black dog out of a dog crate just after they landed. It's the only one of their many animals they bring back with them. The crate is big enough for Samora to stand in. She's still in her white robe, head covered, but emerging from that dog crate with just the biggest smile on her face, like an astronaut popping out of the space capsule, grateful and giddy after the fiery descent back to Earth. And she might as well be coming from space after the eight-year adventure they had just returned from. When the millennium hit, Adair Levon was no longer expecting the end or even wanting it. They had lived in almost 40 different places by then, caves and forests and abandoned homes, living biblically, following the Bible word for word and finding beauty in all of it. I'm looking up at the terraced greenery on the mountainside and the adobe colored buildings that the Arabs lived in that were the bright colors and the sheep up in the pastures and the blue sky and the puffy white clouds. And I looked at it and I said, you know, this is the best you've ever had it. It's never going to get better than this. <laughs> they added two more kids to the three they arrived in Israel with. One Adair gave birth to in the West Bank, which is, by the way, 
not an easy place to give birth. They took us to a clinic down in um, Nablus, which was one open room, which is beds lined up. And there was women that just walked in in their normal clothes, pulled up their skirts and laid on the bed. But in that room, with their, there was like seven or eight other women giving birth. And they're, they're crying out as they're pushing and heads are crowning. And there's one midwife. So she comes over and checks me. She went in, turned the baby right away, and she was out in 20 minutes. And so my baby was born. I handed her to my other daughter. That's Samora, who was 11 by then. I went in the bathroom to clean up, and the whole bathroom is just covered with blood everywhere. It was so amazingly disgusting. So you try to clean up in there as best you can, (laughs) and paid $50 and went home. Bing, bang, boom. Big, bang, boom, Yeah. yeah. Adair's husband left the country, saying he wanted to visit his sick mother, and he wasn't allowed back into Israel. Remember, they burned their passports. And we'd been having problems for a while, so I wasn't too upset that he was gone. Her husband tried to convince her to bring the family back to America, but she resisted. She liked the life they had. And for over two years, she kept the family going herself. And it was good that way. You know, I I always tried to think positive about if he came back, we'd still make the best of things. And then, you know, then when he forced us back, then it was, now we got to make the best of this. In spring of 2002, the police showed up. They put handcuffs and ankle cuffs on me and said I was under arrest. And the guy that was driving said, I can't tell you anything they'll tell you at the station. And that my kids have been taken to someplace safe, but they won't tell me where. And I'm like, where are my kids going? I was just like ready to lose my mind. So I get into, they take me to a high security prison and I find myself behind bars. What I later found out is that my ex had hired an attorney to get the kids. I said, well, what did he want to have happen to me? And he said he said he didn't care. Her husband would be taking the kids back to the U.S. They were all there illegally almost the whole time they were there. After a week in prison, Israeli authorities gave Adair a choice. Stay in prison or leave the country with her kids and her husband. She chose to leave. The police car drove me right up to the ramp of the airplane and of the jet. And so I met my kids on the tarmac and we went up on the jet together. Where's your, where was your husband? My ex was with them. I mean, he was my husband at the time, but he was with the kids. Okay. So you're happy to see your kids. Yeah. (laughs) How are you feeling about? About him? Yeah. Um, I always try to find... Oh my gosh, you have to stop saying that. How (laughs) did you feel about him? Really, that's like the hardest thing is to understand the other side when you're mad at it. You know, you you don't want to understand it. You just want to feel like you have a right to your fury. I had to look at what my future was going to look like because I always had to do what either the church said or God said or my husband said. And it felt like I didn't have a choice. And so when I did have a choice... I was always looking at it from the perspective of what choice can I make right now that will make the best of this situation? Because I do have that power. There's a thing that happens to some astronauts when they come back from space. When they come back from having seen us, all of us, and the planet we live on all at once in one eyeful from the window of the craft. The edges of continents from tip to tail cutting into the blue and thunderstorms from above, way above, where they don't boom or crash, but rather they just flicker and flare in total silence. It's called the overview effect. How seeing things differently in a way few ever have or have the guts to 
how it changes you and the way you look at everything from that moment on and how it can make re-entry coming back down to earth, it can make it a challenge. You know, when we left, we got rid of everything except what we could carry on our backs. And when we came back, we didn't have anything except what we could carry in our hands. Mattia, Adair's oldest son, loses the robes right away. What's it like when a 17-year-old comes back to America after being in Israel wearing white robes for eight years? Um, I kind of lost um, what I felt was my value. And um, I felt like I had dropped a notch. Dropped a notch. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. You know, like I felt like I was busy and I had responsibility and I was kind of proud of what I did. And I came here and was a little lost. Um, After half his life in the desert, he comes back here in 2002 to Slim Shady and South Park and Michael Jackson dangling babies out of windows. You know, I, I drank and I tried my fair share of different drugs and, you know, cigarettes and stuff like that because I didn't care. I re completely rebelled. I had never experienced that. Where I came from, everything was very serious. Um, you know, we laughed, but life wasn't a joke. You know, you took things seriously. If you, if you, uh, there was a lot, a lot going on, a lot you needed to do. And coming back, you just kind of lost that purpose, you know. And also just like basic knowledge about how to be a regular teenager. My English, I learned from my parents for the last eight years. So my vocabulary oh, no. was very original, <laughs> semi-biblical, you know. <laughs> no, didn't even know what swear words were or how to even use them. Um, a lot of words that I just didn't even know Do what Do you remember one meant. word, for example, you're like, what is everyone saying? Do you remember? Porn. Porn? I had not a clue what porn was. Did not know it. I didn't know if it was spelled with a B or a P. <laughs> but you understood what they were talking about. I had to ask a classmate what it meant because I did not know. Wow. Reentry for Adair was harder and humbling. Well, according to everybody was saying, yeah, you'll be back. She arrives to strange looks and some anger from family for taking things so far. You know, it was like, we were right, you were wrong. And we, we were wrong. You know, nothing did happen. And... But that doesn't mean that the journey wasn't valuable. It still had its value in a lot of ways, but the end didn't come, thankfully. <laughs> so, Adjustment takes a long time. She's reluctant to take the robes off, but she's asking more questions. It was my daughter. We went for a walk, and she's the one who got me to question the whole thing. Why didn't I ask myself, is this really who I am, you know, or... Is obedience to this book or this religion I was brought up in, to my husband. Obedience that made her do things she just knew weren't quite right. We walked barefoot from Jericho to Jerusalem. Because there was no rubber in the Bible. No rubber, no shoes. Much of it was on you know, the asphalt road and it was burning the bottom of our feet. We had the kids sitting on the donkeys as much as possible to keep their feet off the ground. It was just like that blind obedience. And I'm like, my value in my mind was based on how well I obeyed everything that I was supposed to be obeying. Instead of finding value in things that are of real value, you know. After six more years and three more children with her husband, she finally breaks away. Her marriage ends. And so, eventually, does her faith 
And now it's like, well, who am I? I didn't even know what kind of clothes to wear. I dressed in white robes for how many years now? It was eight years there and then six years here. Her daughter, Samora, helps her shop. What was the first outfit you bought? <laughs> it was a Hindu-type pantsuit that came down <laughs> long under my knees with these pants under it because I just didn't know how to put pants and a shirt on. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, so I wore those for like maybe a couple weeks, and then my daughter bought me a pair of jeans and a shirt, and she actually put me in those clothes, and um, I had found my the man I'm married to now on eHarmony, and that's the first outfit I wore out to meet him. He didn't meet me in a white robe. I had changed just before then. Oh, you changed just before you met your new husband. Yeah. Jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, well, some kind of shirt and yeah, yeah, jeans yeah. And, and a hat. I, I, I couldn't take the veil off, so I had a funky little hat on. <laughs> like, turns out I'm a hat person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At least then I was. But um, yeah, so it was a whole new learning curve for me. And I loved it. I loved getting to just know my kids and not feel like I was responsible for making sure they obeyed everything in the book. No more end times? No more end times, no. And that's the cosmic kicker. When Adair Levon finally finds happiness in a life that's her own and concedes that the end isn't coming, that's when it comes. So I went and ran some errands and got a phone call. And it was the police, and they asked me to come back home. And I said, is my daughter okay? And they said, we'll talk to you when you get to the house. So I took the longest drive of my life getting oh my back gosh. to the house and ran up to the police officer and I grabbed her by the shoulders and I said, is my daughter dead? And she said, yes, she died in a motorcycle accident today and we need you to come to the hospital and identify her body. It's like this incredibly dark black hole that it feels like everything's just collapsing into. Adair Levon is the biggest believer I have ever met. But she believes in other things now. I found that there's beauty and sadness. We listen to sad music that's beautiful. We watch sad movies that are beautiful. We feel a connection with each other in sadness that we don't feel with each other in happiness. After she died, within the first year, my first two grandchildren were born to me. And when her wave went out, if I had given up then, I wouldn't be there for when those other two waves came back in. Man, we'll cry the 
People would just give me hugs at her graveside that I know would never have hugged me because they were angry at me with my religious craziness and taking the children and keeping them over there. And, you know, all of the family was really mad at me. But they gave me sincere hugs at my daughter's grave. Today, Adair Levon is remarried and works in marketing. Her son, Mattia, is a truck driver and recently bought a plot of land where he hopes to start a homestead. Susan, the survivalist, is a city council person, and her husband, Tom, does metal work in the shed out back. Dave Eddy, the Y2K salesman, is retired and still sends me emails about the bug that was not a bug. And I make documentaries and I got to spend a year getting to know all these guys. I want you to hear a phone call from last winter. Hello? Hey, it's Dan Tabersky. Oh, how are you? When I first began speaking to Bob Loblaw, our Canadian coder. I'm good, how are you? Good, you still want to do this? <laughs> I do. Do you want to do this? Oh, I'm all for it. I want to keep asking you this because it's still time to back out. This was his response when I told him I wanted to make a series about Y2K. There was nothing, there was nothing to say afterwards. Like there was, it's, it's one of those things how you, you try to, t even when I tell people uh, about Y2K, it, 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 I'm telling them about a story that never happened. It's it's one of the hardest stories to tell, as you'll be finding out making this. Uh, you're talking about something that didn't happen. Tomorrow morning at 8.15 a.m., Bob Loblaw is going to walk to work, to that chocolate shop he now owns in Saskatchewan, to get things ready to open up for the day. Now, I don't know what he'll be thinking about when he's turning on the lights and turning off the alarm or when he's starting the coffee pot for his second cup of the day, or when he's arranging sea salt caramels on the samples tray. But if his mind wanders to what he was doing 19 years ago, and how absolutely certain we all were about what the future held, I hope he looks back and he smiles. And I hope he thinks about how feigning certainty is maybe just a way for us to be hopeful. And maybe it's the thing that pushes us to take our biggest gambles. Or maybe it's a way to comfort ourselves in the face of futures we can't possibly know. And then, I hope he pops a chocolate in his mouth and he starts his day. Headlong Surviving Y2K was produced by Henry Malofsky and me, I'm Dan Tabersky. Our associate producers are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Ben Phelan, 
Ben also does research and fact-checking. Joel Lovell is our editor. Original music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. And you can hear more of Mark's music at his website, markortonmusic.com. Our theme song is Burns by George Fitzgerald, courtesy of Domino Recording and Publishing Company. In this episode, you also heard Sam Amidon's Tribulation. Music clearance by Dan Kanishkowi. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. The team at Topic Studios is Leetal Malad and Lisa Leingang. And a special thank you to Adam Pincus. I'd also like to thank Christina DeJosa, Ariana Martinez, Karin Navadia, Ali Delianis, Rob Zerwick, Lauren Weedman, and the folks at the University of Pennsylvania Archive. And thanks to all those who share their incredible Millennium stories, uh, especially those that we couldn't include in the show. Check out more podcasts from Topic at topic.com slash podcasts. And we'll see you back here in just a few months for our next season of Headline. Thank you so much for listening to this season of Headlong. We've got a new season coming in just a couple months. We've been working on it for over the past year. And it's something I've always wanted to investigate myself. And while we don't want to give it away just yet, here's a little taste. That afternoon, I remember having a drink. And I'm a drinker, obviously. And I have no recollection after this just cup of alcohol. Um, so you're obviously drunk. Do you remember the cops showing up? No. Literally do not no, remember I have it. no fucking clue. Do you remember do you remember the cops picking you up and helping you out of the house? Do you remember walking through the snow? I don't even remember them reading me my rights. You saw the cameras. I have no recollection of that whole time frame, gentlemen. Don't even remember the cameras. Mm-mm. It's really embarrassing, dude. Like, I, I keep some people recognize me. Oh, it's no. you. And I'm like, fuck, you know? Like, You get recognized? Yeah. Uh. Is that cryptic enough for you? It is about something you have definitely heard of, and you might love it, and you might hate it, or you might love to hate it. And wherever you fall on that spectrum, you're going to find out real soon why we think it definitely deserves a closer look. And I can't wait to tell you everything we discovered. That's Headlong Season 3. So look forward to that. And until then, happy third millennium.